0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, Today is uh, January 6, 2017, the big 2017. Um, I'm joined in our virtual studio from all over the planet by, uh, right now, uh, Tiffany and Erica. Hey, guys.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: We're here, too,
2: Jonathan, me and Gabby.
0: Hey. Awesome. You guys can hear us.
2: (laughs) In at the Uh, last uh, minute.
0: Great. (laughs) We were uh, we were having some technical difficulties there, and we were just going to kind of wing it and see how it goes. But it appears to have worked out. That's awesome.
3: Yeah. Except for Elliot.
0: <laughs> oh, no. Elliot. Elliot is still fighting his way through the, the the airwaves to get to us.
4: Okay. Let's hope for the best. Yes. Yeah. We're rooting for yeah. you, Elliot. Make
3: it. Come on, <laughs> Elliot. Come on. <laughs> you can do it. So-
0: today our topic is uh the devil's in the details diet dogma and fine-tuning your own uh so we want to talk about all the uh the diets that are out there um even within what you might consider uh you know healthy diets like we talk about uh oh there's elliot there's elliot can you hear us elliot i don't think you can hear us Well, let's see, let's see if we can uh, – we'll try to raise them on Skype while we're going here. But uh, so um, there are a number of, of these diets. You know, you have paleo, ketogenic. There's Whole30, which is all whole foods. Um,
5: can they hear me? Uh,
0: yes. N- yes. We can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so we uh, we wanted to talk about the details around these. Um. And kind of talk about the differences because there, you know, there's not one thing for everybody. Um, The ketogenic diet has had beneficial effects for a lot of people. But uh, as it has become more popular, uh, people have found that uh, for some people, it doesn't work very well for them. Uh, As for some people, it can even be detrimental. Um, We even find that certain people thrive on a certain number of carbs, uh, where some people do really well with like none at all. Uh, some people do well with a certain amount. Um, some people do well with uh, natural sugars coming from like fruits and berries and stuff like that. Some people don't. You know, some people are allergic to coconut. Other people aren't. Same with eggs. Everything else. It's all. You know, we're all extremely different, and so uh, mm-hmm. we wanted to talk about the idea of saying that this is the diet that works, and how that's that's a, a fallacious idea because everybody is so drastically different. Um, you know all these factors come into play, genetics, uh, your, um, <clears throat> you know, where you live, the amount of sunlight that you get, uh, what your environment is like. Um, so we just kind of wanted to delve into that uh, and explore the idea around, uh, you know, what can you do to fine tune your your diet and what can you do to find out more about what might work for you and what might not. Um, and also more about the more I guess conceptual high-level idea uh, that there is not one thing for everybody. So being uh, being open-minded, you know, and not saying like like you may see a lot of information about the keto diet. Let's say it doesn't work for you, and then you're like, "Oh, what's going on?" Because now you've established this belief that that's the diet that works, and so you have to work through that cognitive dissonance. Like, how do you approach this uh, area of study? Uh, with some open-mindedness so that you can actually find the right results.
3: Yeah, I think Um, it's easy to fall into dietary dogmatism just like uh, religious dogmatism. Like you come across some information and a diet that works for you and you go around preaching the gospel to everyone else. And if they find (laughs) that it doesn't give them the same results, I mean, you accuse them of cheating or doing it wrong or, you know, there's many factors that come into play with diet as with a lot of other things. So that has to be considered. And it's important not to pass judgment on other people who can't get with the program as you think that they should be. And exercise too. Oh yeah. That's a big one.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, um, like, uh, when when you come across certain information and it seems like it's really clear cut, um, there's lots of research to back it up and stuff. It's really easy to fall into the the sort of black and white thinking patterns. Um, well, for me it is anyway. Um, to think uh-huh. that this is the one and only way, and I you know yeah. I, I'm sure it's happened to all of us. But you know it's happened to me a number of times when. I've thought that something was completely clear cut and then it turns out that there's a new bit of information that comes out. And, um, and you have to really just be honest with yourself and and realize that that things aren't always as, as black and white as you would like them to be, you know? Yeah.
4: I was thinking earlier, uh, let's see what you guys think. Is, um, there are many people who write about the diet. They are only researchers or um, they're very good at the research, but they're for, most, for the most part, some of them are very healthy. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are interested in doing diets to, mm, to do better performance in their, in their sport for athlete, athletic purposes. They are relatively healthy as well. And there are other people who write about the diet who have more clinical experience. Either they are dietitians or they do personal consultations. And a lot of people seek them who are very sick, like Mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases, severe. Mm -hmm. And I think somewhere in between there lies the difference. You know, um, for some people, a specific diet, like the keto diet, could be very healthy for their epilepsy or their uh, diabetes but for some people who are very good athletics and who have a certain body type, it seems that, yeah, some carbs are really necessary. What yeah. do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's like, you know, the other guys were saying that it's very easy to fall into uh, some kind of dogma, especially if you're you're kind of reading about it and you're reading the research. And I mean, with the example of keto, probably our, our best example, um, you know, on paper, there's, there's so many benefits to it and there's such a, a um, you know, it, it just seems so great to be in this fat metabolism. But, you know, when it plays out, um, depending on the person, depending what their goals are, depending on, um, like you said, Gabby, like if somebody is an, an athlete and they're just trying to improve performance versus somebody who's actually quite sick and is just trying to get healthy. I mean, everybody has these different kind of goals um, that they're trying to get to. So, um, you can't just do a kind of a one size fits all as, as much as, as attractive as that is. You know, you read all about the keto diet, you, you look into all the the science in the background and, and you really kind of get this picture of how this is the perfect diet that everybody should be on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, uh, for everybody, whether you're sick, uh, well, an athlete, um, a couch potato, whatever the case may be. But the fact of the matter is there's, there's so many things that can come in and, and you know, your your genetic predispositions, your environment, like your emotional state, all these different things can have an effect. So I think um, the, the, the best approach, what I, how I've kind of come to, what I've kind of come to is that you kind of can try all these different things out. You know, you try something out and you see how it goes. You give it a good shot. You know, you don't just kind of do it for a week and go, okay, this isn't working. But, you know, you, you have to kind of like try things, play with them a little bit, make some adjustments, see what's going on, and really kind of see where that takes you and, and see what actually, you know, it's, I, I, I'm kind of rambling here. But I just wanted to give an example of, uh, of a naturopath who I knew who um, had really bad seasonal allergies. And um, I said to her at one point, you know, maybe uh, you should try cutting dairy out of your diet because she ate a lot of dairy. And she's like, oh, no, no, I'm fine with dairy. And I was like, well, how do you know? Have you ever cut it out before? She's like, no. And I'm like, well, y- you know, you have to do that. You have to try these things to be able to discover whether or not this is good for you or not. You can't just kind of like decide that you can intuit the exact thing that you need. So I guess what I'm saying is uh, you need to play a lot.
3: <laughs> yeah. And th- try not to get overwhelmed because there's so much information out there. So many different reach researchers saying so many different things. It can be easy to get overwhelmed and just say, Oh, forget it. I'm just going to do whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't take all of this. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah and it's also tempting I mean,
4: to look, Oh, oh sorry, John.
2: Uh, go ahead. I was
0: say, especially if you have any level of, uh, anxiety or say mild OCD or, um, or anything mm. along those lines where you might get really anxious about information about your body. Um, sometimes Googling it is the worst thing you can do. Uh, <laughs> some, some, sometimes. Some you know, paranoid. Some, obviously research is very beneficial, but if you look up like, uh, you know, I have acne, what do I eat? Uh, you're you're going to be at the computer for, for 12 hours trying mm-hmm. to figure it out. Um,
6: but Google you know, says I can uh, eat potato chips.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best thing for acne. And I think one thing to, Doug, to what you were saying about um, doing the experimentation is very important. And uh, I'm not trying to preach here because I fail at this very often, but more trying to remind myself as well to write things down. Yes. If you've you've never done like a a diagnostic experiment without writing anything down, it doesn't work. You know, (laughs) you can't. Yeah. Uh, Because it's easy to
3: forget all the fine details.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. to pick and There's
3: choose a... what works for you,
6: like your, your natural path friend, mm-hmm. Doug, you know, she mm. was convinced, probably because she was addicted, <laughs> yeah. that she yeah. could eat the, the cheese. Is, <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, that is one of the highlights, like you're more addicted to the one thing that you're intolerant to, it sounds yeah. cruel, but <laughs> <laughs>
6: <That's>
4: true. <laughs> That's, it's
2: true, it's true. But yeah, I mean, like you're saying, uh, Jonathan, logging your results is actually really important. And one of the things that a lot of practitioners will do when they're working with somebody is have them keep a diet diary, you know? So over a course of however long, like two weeks, a month, you write down every single thing that goes into your mouth. So everything, you know, uh, a tea, a hot water, you know, your meals, your snacks, absolutely everything. Like your buddy had some potato chips and you had one, you put that down. Just because that gives you like, you know, a reference point, something to look at, you know, and then you can kind of start analyzing that and maybe finding some uh, connecting some dots.
3: Yeah, I actually did that at one point. I kept a calendar. I wrote down everything that I ate, if I did any exercise that day, how I felt, how I slept, uh, mm. the condition of my body, like if I had any bloating or swelling or stomach ache or constipation or whatever, and just keep a log of that and see how things Mm -hmm. go. And then you can have something that you can go back to and tweak as time goes by. And as you, you know, start changing things up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, anybody who is familiar with, uh, their own body, I mean, I think most people are, even if they don't kind of go, uh, you know, full, full, full steam ahead into something like this, you have a familiarity with your body and what, when you feel good and when you don't, um, like, so you can then, like you said, you can reference your notes. And I think it's important too, like you were saying earlier, not to get overwhelmed um, with the uh, diary. Um, sometimes, say, if you uh, try to make something a new lifestyle and you're like, I'm going to do this from now on, that can become very overwhelming. You can actually shoot yourself in the foot by, by over committing to it. So I think maybe a, a way to start if you've never done something like that before is to say, I'm just going to do this for uh, two weeks, you know. So, okay, here's a here's a notebook that I got and uh, put a pen next to the book and put it in your kitchen or wherever. And for two weeks, write down everything that goes in your mouth and then you can look back on that. And then uh, as an example for me, I have a lot of chiropractic issues and I, I notice um, – so I ha- I'll get – uh, when i'm when I'm healthy and I'm not inflamed, I'll actually get a lot of movement in my joints where they will pop and move around. and that's actually like healthy for that to happen. Um, mm-hmm. when i when I am inflamed, they'll they'll lock up and they won't pop. So that feeling like say when you're when the side of your neck, you know if it'll crack and make a sound and you feel like it really needs to and you really need to pop your neck, but it won't go, you know, and so mm-hmm. it's like stiff. That means there's inflammation around. Uh, the the uh, the joints and around your spine there, so that's why there's not movement happening, and there's not the the cavitation where the the, the air is moving out and making the popping sound. So <clears throat> all that to say, I notice that uh, when I'm that's a marker for me when I'm inflamed. I'm like, okay, well you know my spine, my shoulders are not moving around properly, so something is going on. What did I eat the last couple days? And then I can kind of track it back to, well, you know, I had. X thing yesterday, and that's probably manifesting today as inflammation, which is locking up my joints. Um, but it takes some time to become familiar in that way with with what your results are uh, and, and what they uh, what they indicate to you. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's. Different I think for that's everybody.
2: that's an important point too. I mean, you, you were saying that most people know their own bodies, but I've actually found the opposite that a lot of people tend to not be very in touch with a lot of the symptoms that they're having you know they've maybe lived with them for so long that they've just kind of become normalized um especially when it comes to things like moods Uh, moods can be very difficult to track because you kind of when you're in a mood you kind of like you're just in it and not necessarily like self-aware enough to kind of be like wait a second i'm in i'm you know in a very anxious state right now why is that um, so I think, uh, you know, tracking it, like we were saying with a diet diary and including symptoms and moods and how you're sleeping and all that kind of stuff can be very um, illuminating, let's say.
5: Yeah, I was surprised when I spoke. Well, when I've spoken to people over the past couple of years um, about certain issues that they've had, say, if they've got something like IBS that only comes um, that's irritable bowel syndrome. But only comes on every couple of days, and you know, um, I'll ask the basic question of, you know, have you correlated it with any any of the foods that you're eating, um, and and they'll look at me sort of in um, <laughs> in awe and say, "Wow, I never thought of doing that." <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> <so> sad.
6: <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's a fairly new concept for a lot of people because mm. they're not necessarily told that. That this this could be a factor that, that comes into it. And so um so it's really good to try and to try and keep up to date with what what's going on with your body, you know, keep track of it as as you guys have just been saying.
3: Yeah. And I think that's a good starting off point before you even make any changes at all. Like if you can do two or three weeks where you just write down what you eat. And you don't worry about, oh, I'm going to change this or this is my goal. You just do that as an uh, an observation, a starting point. And then once you yeah. start to recognize certain patterns, then you can start changing. But I think it's important to just do it first and just observe without judgment and try not to change anything and then yeah. go from there. I think mm-hmm. that Dr. Think, Hyman suggested so. that in oh. the Ultra
6: Simple Diet mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Eliminating yeah. things or the elimination diet. I can't remember. if that Yeah,
2: was that's right. what I was going to say as well. I mean, getting a baseline, I think, is a good idea. But um, after that, you know, doing an elimination diet. Um, and you can find a lot about elimination diets online um, where you cut out a lot of the offending foods, the ones that people seem to be very uh, sensitive to. Um, by cutting all of those out, you, um, you, you get a new kind of baseline. So if you from there if you cut out all those foods and that suddenly you're feeling a lot better then you know there's something in that offending food list that is that is causing a problem and, and you can start reintroducing them and and seeing what happens.
4: And the offending foods usually uh, include dairy, mm-hmm. gluten grains, mm-hmm. eggs, what else am I missing? Nightshades often. Oh, nightshades, that's right. Yeah. And all the processed foods like you're not going to have like, you know, uh, crackers filled with GMOs.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's safe to assume that you know nobody reacts well to aspartame or like you know
6: <laughs> MSG. You, you could
2: probably write that off right right away.
4: Mm-hmm. And it is amazing because people who are very sick. Okay, we often recommend this diet, this very simple diet. Eat, eat as simply as possible. You know, like meats and some like neutral vegetables. And do that until you feel better, usually Mm. one week or two weeks sometimes. Mm. And some people feel so great that they just want to continue on this diet like forever. Mm. But the idea is, yes, to reintroduce one group of food at a time every four days and see what happens. That's the thing, you know, that can make the whole difference.
0: Yeah, when you mentioned nightshades, I have a thing with um, raw nightshades most especially raw bell peppers just totally Mm. totally mess me up i get bloated uh lots of like pain like stomach pain and that kind of stuff but i can eat like uh cooked jalapenos um, (laughs) or 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 like uh, cooked down like tomato sauce and that doesn't bother me so there's a difference too between what you react to whether it's raw or cooked Mm -hmm. which makes it more confusing yeah totally and what makes
3: makes it more confusing is maybe at a certain point in your life you could eat whatever you want and not feel any ill effects like depending Mm. on your age like i recall for myself uh i lost a ton of weight like over 100 pounds and i was Mm. still eating gluten and dairy but Mm. that was like over 20 about 20 years ago i i couldn't do that now Because I was exercising quite a bit at the time, too. But there were certain foods that I cut out, like fast foods and that. But it was still like a standard, sad American diet. But I still Mm -hmm. had some, you know, I was able to reach a certain goal with that diet. But 20 years down the line, I probably couldn't do that. So a lot of people say, oh, I can eat whatever I want and not feel bad. But it might be the case that you just don't feel bad yet.
4: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: Or you yeah. don't know what bad is. Yeah. That's that's one thing that I find a lot of the times. It's like, oh, I don't feel bad. Mm-hmm. But then you know they've got allergies, they have difficulty sleeping, they you know, all these little things that they've just kind of attributed to life, you know. Yeah. Oh that's
3: just life. And they're anxious like, and no. their mood is in the toilet, but they just don't notice it. And yeah, you <laughs> see that a lot with <laughs> exactly. the vegetarian
6: crowd, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm healthy, yeah. I eat yeah. organic, mm-hmm. I eat tons of soy. But I'm a psycho. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I'm a
2: psycho. That's just who I am.
6: It's my personality.
2: <laughs> well, I
0: think yeah, a key to... Like,
4: oh, sorry, well, Jonathan, go ahead.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, I think a key to that um, while we're talking about, uh, you know, dogma and not being a hard line about one thing is the best, um, that it's important to achieve a, a sort of balance. So, Tiff, you lost a lot of weight you know, while you were still eating like gluten and dairy, but you had cut out processed foods and you were exercising. Yeah. So I think it's important to point out for people who may like, we may have listeners who are like, uh, Jesus, I can't do this entire thing. You know, like I don't have the time or the energy to devote to like becoming a guru of my own diet. It's like just maybe at first, um, try to like cut out the processed foods I would say for sure don't eat like fast food and stuff like that. But, you know, just try to achieve some kind of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're sedentary, uh, exercise a little bit more, even just going for walks. Uh, if you're not, if you're like super active all the time, uh, maybe try to relax a little bit more, like trying to achieve a more overall balance in your life. Uh, that can kickstart then the um, the inspiration and the mental focus to, to research it more. Mm. So with
5: with the with the diet... Uh, the information about diet and nutrition being like a really daunting thing for most people. Um, what I found in my experience was that I thought it was all really boring. <laughs> I was never really interested in diet and nutrition and lifestyle. But for me, when, when I began to, to dig a little deeper and find out how many things we're lied to about, um, it became really interesting. And I think that happens with a lot of people. They, they, they associate diet and nutrition with lots of boring things and, and lots of effort that doesn't really need to be put in. And so when they start to find out all of the, the interesting information about how the body works and what is actually really bad for the body and what is good for the body, um, because it kind of goes against what, what we're told in, in the mainstream, I think, um, there's a lot of people who, who suddenly develop, like, a massive interest in it simply <laughs> because it is really interesting, you know? It's your body, and you need to take care of it. And I think there's a lot of people who um, who probably do care about that stuff. It's just, I think one of the things is there's so many conflicting information, so many conflicting pieces of information. One, saying, one person saying one thing, and the other person saying the opposite thing, that it's kind of just like, as, as you said before, you know, it's so overwhelming um, that that they kind of just melt into the floor and give up at the first hurdle. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's a really good point about making it interesting. Um, I think, too, when you see results, you know, it can also become more interesting. Um, that happened to me. Like, I used to have, like, my neck would lock up all the time, uh, and it would result in headaches and grumpiness and all sorts of things um, and pain. Uh, and then I, I could, all I did was cut out gluten and see a chiropractor and I was like a completely new person and I was like, Mm. Whoa, there's something here, you know, all of a sudden like the spark turned on. Um, so yeah, you can, that can, that can turn on your, your interest in the topic. If you try something and you notice results in your own body, because anybody who lives with pain understands that the day that you don't have that pain is like, you're like the king of the world. Yeah. You're a
4: changed person. I mean, it changes your life. There's nothing like having good health.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is really fundamental. Like just, um, you know, what, what you put into your body is obviously going to have an effect on you, but it's a, but there is a disconnect there, like kind of like what Elliot was saying before that people, people don't necessarily make that connection. And anytime there's anything about diet or healthy diet or something, you know, their first thought is, why would I bother? You know, that just sounds like making my life very difficult. And, you know, especially if it's something like cutting out gluten or cutting out dairy, I mean, there, you've just, like, eliminated, like, uh, 90% of the restaurants that you once could eat in. So it's like, why do I want to make myself, you know, this person who, uh, you know, has all these dietary restrictions and, you know, it's it, it, it can be it's, it's unappealing in a lot of ways. But I think like you're saying, Jonathan, if you actually try something like this and you do see some results... You'll, you'll realize, you know, it's, it's suddenly you're aware of the potential that's there, you know? Right.
3: So, do we want we to know? get into some of the arguments against yeah. ketogenic that's diets? I, I mean, we say. don't want to become yeah. dogmatic ourselves. And I'm always interested <laughs> in hearing opposing views to my own dogmatic yeah. beliefs. And we've yeah. seen just through personal experience and people talking about this on our forum that ketogenic diet just did not work for them. They felt like crap.
4: So. Yeah, that's like the other extreme example. Let's like get into people that do the keto diet, and they do it right. Like mm-hmm. They do it everything, every single step. They go through all the research, the troubleshooting, try to solve their own problems, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So what's the deal here?
2: Yeah, they must be doing it wrong.
4: <laughs> They're There's cheating.
2: They've, they've, <laughs> they've messed up in some way.
3: They're not yeah. eating enough fat. <laughs> That's the <laughs>
2: popular <laughs> the word. Keto diet is
0: perfect, so there must be something wrong with them. Something. Yeah. Wrong <laughs> with them. <laughs> well, let's let's. Uh, we we have a uh, an interesting clip uh, from a gentleman named Danny Roddy uh, talking about uh, ketosis and its relation to metabolic stress. And I think this is pretty interesting, and it lends to uh, some of the information that Elliot was telling us about before when we were planning this show. Um, so I wonder if we could check that clip out and then kind of come back and, uh, and talk about the details and we'll get into a little bit of the science uh, around you know where this can go wrong. Okay.
7: Hello everyone, I'm Danny Roddy and today I wanted to talk about a couple of reasons that I believe that ketosis actually mimics the stress metabolism. Before we get too far into it, we should go over what so-called nutritional ketosis actually is. If you dramatically cut down on your carbohydrate consumption, in addition to expending your liver's reserve of sugar, sometimes called glycogen, an increased functioning of adaptive stress hormones and signaling substances will increase the rate of lipolysis. That is, they'll liberate free fatty acids into the blood to use as fuel. This is sometimes referred to as becoming a fat burner and is said to be an ideal metabolic state for warding off diseases like obesity, diabetes, and even cancer. I think these claims are physiologically bankrupt And while I don't necessarily believe that ketosis is incompatible with health, I'm not sure there's physiologically any reason for inducing a ketogenic state for any reason. Before we get too far, a large part of this video is gonna hinge on the specifics of energy metabolism. And energy metabolism in context with constantly renewing the organism and supporting every function imaginable. In his 1957 book, The Living State with Observations on Cancer, Albert St. George said that a cell needs energy for all of its functions, but also to maintain its structure. The ability of the cell to maintain this high energy relaxed state is bracketed by the availability of glucose and oxygen. Because protein, carbohydrate, and fat can provide glucose, oxygen is the ultimate bottleneck in efficient energy generation through the mitochondria, sometimes called oxidative metabolism or mitochondrial respiration. Bracketing oxygen use is the so-called waste product carbon dioxide, which is produced under the direction of good thyroid function. Among its many functions, carbon dioxide dissociates oxygen from the hemoglobin molecule better allowing cells, tissues, and organs to absorb oxygen. Hans Selye, a pioneering endocrinologist in the field of stress, found that an interference in the organism's ability to generate efficient energy resulted in the inability to meet energy requirements. This resulted in the organism mounting an adaptive stress response to restore stability. Over time, this chronic adaptive stress response would become less and less efficient leading to the disorganization of the entire organism and ultimately death. Another way to think about it is that glucose, oxygen, and especially carbon dioxide are the most basic anti-stress factors and that you wouldn't want to do anything to interfere with the utilization or the generation of these substances. So now that that's out of the way, let's talk about one reason why ketosis actually mimics the stress metabolism. If there's one thing to take away from this video, it's that becoming a fat burner, as they say, or increasing the rate of lipolysis through carbohydrate restriction voluntarily is a hallmark of aging and disease. For instance, one study found that free fatty acid levels increase long before hyperglycemia becomes present. And another said that there seems to be little doubt that there are signals for increased mobilization of fat in shock, trauma, and sepsis. In another quote, the enhanced mobilization and oxidation of fat is one of the fundamental responses to stress. The mechanism here is that in the short term, adrenaline is increased squeezing all of the glycogen out of the liver and liberating free fatty acids into the blood. Over the long term, cortisol and a variety of other hormones, especially from the pituitary, increase the rate of lipolysis slowing the metabolism and bringing the renewal of the entire organism to a screeching halt. Another way ketosis mimics the stress metabolism is by producing less carbon dioxide. This happens primarily by the oxidation of free fatty acids providing much less carbon dioxide than that of glucose glucose oxidation by way the link reaction and the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase provides far more carbon dioxide than the oxidation of free fatty acids in addition to being a basic anti-stress factor dr chris masterjohn has recently pointed out that carbon dioxide is a critical cofactor for the assimilation of the oh-so-important fat-soluble vitamins a point that the entire paleo and ancestral health community has completely ignored. The final point I wanted to get across is that ketosis is essentially a hibernation-like state for humans. Rather than taking my word for it, you the viewer can actually measure your metabolic rate and see if carbohydrate restriction or an increase in carbohydrate consumption or ketosis is having a measurable impact on your metabolic rate my two favorite self-diagnostics are the resting pulse rate in combination with the body temperature and measuring those a few times a day can provide insight into the rhythmic changes of the metabolism hans Sellier found that the pulse could barely be felt in extreme stress situations and landsberg et l recently wrote a paper describing the association between a low body temperature and several different health problems that's all for me. Please leave your constructive comments and criticisms in the comment section, and I'll talk to you guys soon.
3: Okay. <laughs> so a ketogenic diet is mimicking an extreme stress state. So what I've read about ketogenic diets before is that it mimics a fasting state, but why would you want to be in that fasting state for the rest of your life, basically, is the hmm. question. Unless you were
6: hibernating. Yeah.
5: yeah. Well, this, this is the thing. I think it's putting it into context. Um, so I guess from an environmental point of view, um, going into a state of ketosis um, represents a lack of um, food, so when there's, uh, you know, a, a lack of food in the environment, your body essentially goes into this stressed state where it's saying, okay, we need to do every single thing that we can to, to, to live as long as we can while food is not available. Um, but when food becomes available again, then you I, ideally you would go, you would go back into, in, into this glucose metabolism. I think it kind of makes sense. Um, because. Well, well, I was just going to say because, you know, we we live in a, a modern world now where we are never exposed to a proper winter. Um, we have artificial lights on all year round and we live in warm houses, you know. So so I would imagine that our ancestors lived in an environment where they would have to face long, hard, cold winters um, with very little light, natural light. And so um, there would also be a scarcity of food. And I think ketosis would be a very 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 beneficial um, survival mechanism for our species to to basically live out through the winter uh, however um we we don't live that lifestyle anymore so it could be argued that when when we live we, we live our modern life it, it, it's almost like um, confusing for the body. To, to go into a stress state metabolism when all of the environmental factors are not matching that. Does
4: Another that way, sense? yeah, it makes sense. Another way I will pose the question is, like uh, like Tiffany asked, you know, why would you want to do fasting like uh, forever? Or you see the examples in nature then, when do animals fast?
3: When they're sick.
4: Exactly, (laughs) which brings the point that it seems, you know, it seems from research and experience that, you know, restricting carbs is mostly beneficial, but for people who are very sick, it reminds me even the example, like some people say, like, the more sick you are, the more primal you should be, you know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like uh, an ideal diet for the entire population, you know.
6: What if you have chronic illness, Gabby?
4: Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz
3: it seems like well, the people a- who got the best yeah. results from the ketogenic diet are the people who had some major health issues going on at the time.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean the ketogenic diet its clinical application is undisputed. I, I mean now, I mean it has been used to treat so many Um, conditions and it really really shows clinical significance Um, but yeah the question becomes you know is is it suitable for long-term as a long-term dietary template when someone isn't necessarily suffering from some terminal cancer or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, and 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 there's a really good argument that's posed and it says that I, I think it was Chris Kresser that actually said this And he said that, okay, so a low carb, high fat diet has been shown to cure many of these illnesses, but why, you know, how can we take that information and then assume that it is the best state to be in all of the time? You know, it's making the assumption that just because it cures an illness, it means that everyone should be in it all, all like 24 seven, you know, 365 days of the year Mm -hmm. and and I think that is an assumption. And it seems that um, through people's experience, it it doesn't it it doesn't seem to work too well.
3: Yeah, Chris Cresser said that very low carb diets can be effective in certain situations, like overweight and obesity, uh, high blood sugar, metabolic metabolic syndrome, diabetes types one and two, traumatic brain injuries, epilepsy, Parkinson's alzheimer's and other neurological conditions and as well as uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome but uh, he said that uh, long-term ketogenic or very low-carb diets can cause adverse changes to the gut microbiota and he recommends like some starches he recommends resistant starches like uh, starches that you eat that pass through your digestive system, your stomach, and make it into your large intestine basically intact, like uh, plantains, uh, green bananas, legumes, potatoes. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what he recommends.
2: Yeah, I think it is important to point out as well that some there are some people out there who actually seem to do well on a ketogenic diet mm-hmm. um, all the time. Um, you know, they might, they might not be, um, your average person, like, you know, everybody, but, um, there's certainly lots of, uh, examples out there of people who maintain a ketogenic diet all the time and seem to actually do quite well on it. Um, so again, it's, you know, it, 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 really does come back to individuality and, and how, um, you are kind of reacting to a diet.
5: Yeah. Highlights that every person is, is different you know? And we all probably would thrive off of sort of different um, different diets and different ways of living and things. Um, but I think I know that I've certainly <laughs> fallen prey to the idea that sugar is the be all and end all worst thing that could possibly happen to the human race. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> There's you know, something like even worse. <laughs>
5: sugar is- so bad sugar is really bad it's all because of the sugar um but you know on the other side of that argument um there's uh quite a few researchers and one that is notable and i will mention him his name's ray pete dr ray pete he's a physiologist i think he's from the uk and so his his research actually demonstrates that the metabolism of sugar is not necessarily um, as bad as what many people um, would like to think. And that it's actually a, a very beneficial thing.
6: <laughs> Can now, you clarify it, what type of sugar you're talking about? Is, the, well, is that like high fructose corn syrup is okay?
3: Well,
5: <laughs> 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 no, it's not high fructose corn syrup, but it is fructose. So fruit and it sugar. is glucose. And it is sucrose as well. So refined sugar, um, if you look at it from a biochemical level, actually turns out to be less, um, or in Ray Pete's opinion, uh, he would say that table sugar is less detrimental for the body than a starch. Like a piece of white bread. Like a piece of white bread. And there's a couple of reasons for this. And... Um, one of them is because of the insulin response. So when you eat a starch, like a, a piece of white bread, you'll get a rapid um, sort of a release of insulin and your body will turn that um, into adipose fat. So starch essentially does really well to, to help your body to put on loads of fat. But there's an interesting thing that... Fructose um, has actually been shown to inhibit the stimulation of insulin by glucose. So when you eat something like table sugar, which is sucrose, which is a mixture of glucose and fructose, um, you don't actually get that insulin response. So (laughs) I know that that seems really counterintuitive to say that table sugar is not all that bad, but from a biochemical level. Uh, it doesn't seem to have as many detrimental effects, and so in from according to Ray P he um, in one of his articles he says that the oxidation of sugar is metabolically efficient in many ways, including sparing oxygen consumption. So he, for, he focuses a lot on um, oxygen and carbon dioxide and their uh, their role in the body, and he says that. Sugar consumption and metabolism produces more carbon dioxide than, than oxidizing fat. And carbon dioxide has many protective functions. Um, so one of the main arguments against sugar metabolism is that it produces something called um, advanced glycation end products. Now, this is basically um, these are things in the body that attach sugar molecules to proteins. And it has like a caramelizing effect. And so it basically renders the protein um, incompatible with any functions and it, it, it makes you ill, basically.
6: Mm.
5: So um, this whole thing about glycation is commonly cited as a really bad thing about sugar. But um, <laughs> carbon dioxide actually surrounds the cell or the protein um, in like a protective bubble and prevents the protein from being glycated. And so his argument is that when you're in ketosis, um, you don't produce nearly as much of carbon dioxide and you are still going to get massive amounts of glycation.
6: Mm.
5: Whereas when you're, when you're burning sugar, um, you're producing so, car- so much carbon dioxide that is actually protective on the proteins, it's protective on the cells. Um, so, yeah, so- sorry if that took a little bit of a while to explain <laughs> No, No, that. yeah, that's good. I just want
4: to highlight something here. This is from a biochemical point of view. Um, I think, uh, from what I understand, it's like an ideal uh, circumstances, not a pathological circumstances. Like you know, you can see a person like eating a high sugar diet and still you know have insulin issues. You know, and and although there are other factors regulating insulin and blood sugar. I think, um, that's where we, where we, where we find the fine line of why some people benefit by restricting carbs and others, you know, got kafluwi by, by restricting them, you know. And another thing that I want to highlight is you mentioned glycation, you know, and that's why, you know, a high carb diet has been so demonized because it ages you, it produces all, all this caramelization in your body. But there's actually something that might produce more glycation in your body, and it's not a sugar. It is burned, polyunsaturated fatty acids like hydrogenated vegetable oil, processed fats, you know, that can create more damage to your body.
3: Like soybean oil, corn oil, vegetable oils, canola oils. Yep. Yep.
5: And when so did we start the- to see the massive rise in diabetes? When we started We're using vegetables. vegetable oils and it's been blamed on sugar. And that's very interesting, isn't
4: it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's very, this is like the mo- the thing that really stands out as a common factor in all the diets, even the vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. So vegetable oil is just the most evil thing that you can eat. You know? If you want to wreck your health, mm. eat
3: vegetable oils. Yeah. So PUFAs well, are absolute a- no-no's. That was, was in the show description. So everybody take note. That's the absolute no-no. You can play with carbs, but you can't play with poofas.
0: <laughs> yeah. what, what's a poofa?
3: <laughs> it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid. I
0: yeah. find it very interesting. Uh, if you look at uh, history, which is al- always uh, illuminating um you know, it, it's oftentimes confusing, but it's always illuminating to look back and, and see the overarching picture of what has happened. And Elliot, that point that you made, I think, is is one of the the cruxes of what we're talking about, which is when we look at the rise of certain diseases like diabetes, um, that that happened around the time where the general, you know, the food pyramid was was made popular, and the general opinion was turned away from uh, natural. Uh, whole fats uh, that were uh, mostly or animal fats um, to vegetable oils and hydrogenated uh, oils. And you, uh, you can make that connection. So you could also make the connection with sugar, which has been made. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, sugar extracted from different sources had been around for a much longer time than the hydrogenated oils had been popular. And you really can nail that mm. down. Um, yeah, to the period in time when these diseases started to emerge on a greater scale.
5: Yeah, and there have been studies. Um, there's been a number of studies that have conclusively shown that people with high sugar, high fructose diets, specifically low polyunsaturated fats, are pretty much 100% completely um, protected from diabetes, and and that is a fact. Um, in that high sugar diets do not cause diabetes and but but that is it that is a strange concept because i was always under the impression that high sugar diets did cause diabetes but i i found the the more we look into it it, it seems to be that maybe sugar is is not the culprit in this because we have been consuming sugar for such a long time and uh, of course diabetes is is has been a problem throughout history, but nothing to the extent that it has nowadays what we see nowadays is is absolutely un um un unheard of you know it's like <laughs> one in two people or something they're saying one in two people to get diabetes by like twenty thirty uh, that's insane. <laughs> yeah.
4: This is something to really think about, like ideal, in ideal circumstances, we should be able to metabolize sugar properly, but what if the vegetables oils have wrecked our health to the point that, yeah, like now you have to restrict them, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I I think think too, like uh, taking, or, or taking balance into consideration as well, like we've been talking about, um, if, you know, for, for one part, you know, look at the, uh, the, the fast food, and not just the fast food, but like the chain restaurant industry where everything is fried in polyunsaturated fats um, and hydrogenated oils um, and is uh, high in sugar. So you have a combination of those two things, which is uh, apparently a, 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 you know, uh, if not uh, lethal, extremely harmful combination Um but on the other hand of things, you know, while we're talking about dogma, I think it's very important to keep in mind the, uh, the context of all of these different uh, things that we're talking about. So for instance, you may be able to handle a certain amount of sugar, but if you're sitting on your ass all day and not being active, then you can't properly metabolize that. So there also needs to be paired with a certain amount of physical activity, um, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, I, I would think that if you were uh, highly sedentary, that you would not Uh, You may want to experiment with sugar, but you would not want to, like, ramp it up um, because that would also be harmful.
3: And the more sedentary that that you are, the less insulin receptors you have on your muscles. So you're getting Mm -hmm. more uh, glucose buildup in your bloodstream where they should be able to shuttle into your muscles. So that's why exercise is important.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to highlight is that the vegetable oil is not only found like in processed food or restaurants, you know. You can go to an organic store, you know, and buy like gluten-free products and everything. And it's all loaded with vegetable oil or seed oil. Mm. That still counts as burned tufas, you know. Mm. Actually, Ray Pete has a very good example. He shows how like cooking salmon, like in vapor. Because uh, just because it takes so much time, you know, it actually burns its poofas more easily than if you just fry it in fat, you know. That was
5: that was interesting. Yeah, well, that brings up um, an
2: interesting point. Like, what about fish oil? What
5: well, do you think, guys? This is it. <laughs> this is it. Well, I've, there's some there's there's some interesting information on fish oil actually, and, and it's not oh. good. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think this this needs to be taken in environmental context as well. And there's a um, a doctor called Dr. Josh Lamaro, and he's got a website called Paleo Osteo. And so he he wrote a really good article, and it's actually up on SOT, and it's called Polyunsaturated Fats in Environmental Context. So it talks about how in nature we find polyunsaturated fats. Um, they they naturally fluctuate. So the so the level of, of 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 the type of fats in a cell membrane will fluctuate throughout the year. So in the summer and in the springtime, the cell membrane will be more saturated, and in the autumn and winter time, it will become more unsaturated. There's a few reasons for this, and one of them is because it's theorised that uh, an unsaturated fat is basically like a cellular antifreeze. So if you put, say, if you get um, a bottle of vegetable oil and you put it in the fridge, what happens? It stays liquid. Uh, it won't harden. And, and so this is uh, this. I mean, it turns out plants, plants actually do this as well. So um, the fatty acid composition of plants changes in different temperatures. Um, so you have more unsaturated fatty acids in colder temperatures and higher and warmer temperatures and so this is like it's almost like it it seems like it's a way that the organism protects from the harsh winters (laughs) because if it was all if, if it was saturated all year round in freezing cold temperatures it would freeze and it would die so you've got this little piece of information and so what his point is in this article, he lays it out really well. He basically he tries to put it in the context of information. And he says, so if you if you consider that fats um, constitute information that is 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 absorbed by the by the body system. And so unsaturated fatty acids basically represent a certain type of information. And that is that you are going to go into a hibernating state um because what they do is they essentially suppress the metabolic rate uh they create like a a temporary hyperthy- hypothyroidism so i mean it, you understand you're going to going to hibernation. You do not want a high metabolic rate because if you had a high metabolic rate, you'd use all of your energy resources and you would die throughout the winter. So one of the really important things for bears, for instance, or for any any animal that is going to go into this high hibernation state is that they need to suppress the metabolic rate. And this happens by unsaturated fatty acids. Um And so the thing is, is that when you're consuming fatty acids, unsaturated fatty acids all the time, um, what it actually or what the research shows is that this is what suppresses this metabolic rate. And so this is apparently really good. It's seen as really good because there's this theory that came around. I think it was in like the 1950s or 60s. Gabby, you might know more about this. It's called the rate of living theory. And this basically states that if you have a lower metabolic rate, you will live for longer. And if you have a higher metabolic rate, you will die faster. Now, (laughs) that has actually turned out to be completely almost the opposite of 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 the truth because we see many animals uh, and in human patients as well when they have a high metabolic rate when they have massive amounts of energy production they function much better and they actually live longer and so um when you constantly consume polyunsaturated fatty acids you are suppressing that metabolic rate you're lowering the amount of energy that your mitochondria can produce um, and so, you know, this is why polyunsaturated fats, uh, they've been known to suppress immune function. Uh, they slow down cell turnover. Um, they suppress hormone function. I mean, the, the effect of uh, polyunsaturated fats on, uh, on the thyroid, it, I mean, it completely destroys the thyroid th- function. Um, and this has been shown in a number of studies. Sorry, Gabby.
4: Yes, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate, though, because I read this research and uh, yes, I know it's pretty well referenced, but there's also other research and clinical experience that, you know, at least for longevity purposes, a little bit of hypothyroidism correlates with longevity and to the point that if you give thyroid medication to an elderly patient who has a little bit of hypothyroidism, he could have more heart attacks, disease, you know. It could it can cut short his longevity. Okay.
5: <laughs> so yeah, well, I think
0: this, yeah, speak, I think- this, this speaks yeah. to our topic, doesn't it? That it's all different for for everyone. Um, yeah, but-
5: totally. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but I still think it, it is uh there is something to these uh, uh, the polyunsaturated fatty acids and how it could be like a a sign that the season is changing. It's time for hibernation. And uh, from what I gathered and from what I understood, you know, since these uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, they're so unstable, um, they need enough um, antioxidants and saturated fatty acids to stabilize them, at least from our practical point of view on a daily basis, you know.
3: That's where you should, um, if you're consuming some PUFA, you should take some vitamin E. Yeah. Yeah. For example. Yeah.
5: yeah, and and for someone who's got an autoimmune condition, um, some omega three um, fish oils can be so beneficial in the short term. But I, I think maybe because they do work at suppressing that immune function to some someone, mm. um, and they they you know they do have many good benefits. But as a as a, a constant supplement, it may it may be something that is questionable um whether mm-hmm. whether it has has much of a beneficial effect mm-hmm. well, i'm
0: curious something just came to mind i wonder if we look to nature uh as an inspiration for this <laughs> where if you look at the cycles of uh of fruiting and of uh <clears throat> animal movement um that the, the fruits and the berries come out in the summer uh, which is when you would need more natural sugars and when you have Ah uh, you know for to increase your metabolic rate and you have that amount of sunlight needed to uh, to uh, supplement your metabolism um, and then as you come into the fall, you have the the fish runs, which is when the the, the migrating fish come up into the rivers. Um, if you look at you know the bears, uh, especially like grizzly bears, which when they go down to um, pull salmon out of the out of the river, that's in the fall um, as well as um, now, I don't know if this is necessarily a reflection of the natural world, but, like, most hunting seasons take place in the fall, uh, which is when you're harvesting uh, animals with a lot of fat content in them, um, you know. And so it, it occurs to me that, like, if we look at the natural cycles, that is an inspiration for how we can kind of mold our own framework on that, where you may need more carbs and natural sugars during the summer, uh, and then you may need to decrease your metabolic rate going into the winter, and you would need more uh, fats um, and animal protein. I don't know. Is that, like I'm totally speculating off the top of my head.
6: Yeah,
4: that is interesting.
6: Yeah.
4: Well, it reminds me of there is um. Oh, I forgot his name. Speedteller, I think it is. He's a chemist. Um, he has published hundreds of articles. And uh, it explains a lot from a basic science organic chemistry point of view why saturated fat is totally exempted from cardiovascular disease because it's the one stabilizing factor you know in your body and in all these unstable fats, you know what you know it actually is protective you know for cardiovascular disease. And it reminds me that he talked also about omega-3s and fish oil. they are so popular. But uh, from what researchers have been able to determine, it's uh, actually within the context of eating the fish because the fish has other, other antioxidants that stabilize the omega-3s, that it is good. So it could be questionable, like, okay, you extract this pure fish oil without the antioxidants in the meat of the fish. How good that can, can it be, you know?
5: <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. And, and one thing that I think we should also consider um, is that when we live under artificial light, um, it, one of the effects of artificial light is to actually oxidize the unsaturated fatty acids um, in the skin and in the eye. Um, and that there was a paper that you cited, Gabby, and that was a fascinating paper. Um, and that, that was explaining how unsaturated fatty acids can go on to produce um, something called a hydroxyl radical it's a free radical Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. is known as the worst one because the body can't really do much to protect against it and the question then becomes is if you are consuming high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the form of fish oil but you Mm -hmm. are exposed to artificial blue light um, you are creating constant oxidation of those fatty Mm -hmm. acids and, and, and Really, you could be doing more damage than 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 good. Mm
4: -hmm. This is the guy that I was saying, the organic chemist, and uh, it is very. I think it is very important because even it 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 goes back to repeat that you referenced, you know, and um, basically, uh, okay, I lost my train of thought here. For a moment, it's the polysaturated fats that are basically not that essential. That's what I was trying to bring. Because they tell us, you know, this is an essential fatty acid. Your body cannot produce it. You absolutely must eat it. And uh, he reviews that research. And he asked researchers around saying, okay, can you show me why it is essential? And they're quoting the researchers are responding with a paper from the 1920s, <laughs> when not even B vitamins were discovered, you know. And um, and it actually could be that these essential fatty acids are not that essential. It was basically like a lack of vitamin that produced the syndrome that they were researching back in the 20s. And uh, what pretty much is. Um, is uh, discovered is that what we eat normally on a daily basis is enough uh, fatty acid, unsaturated fatty acid. We don't need like extra, you know, super supplementation. You know, uh, the more we add, the more unstable uh, the fatty acids are. The more stabilizing factors we'll need. You know, in terms of antioxidants or saturated fat.
5: Yeah, but then this also brings in the question: Is if if you're consuming lots of those um, unsaturated fatty acids, but then supplementing with lots of antioxidants, the, the the byproduct effect of those antioxidants on mitochondrial function as well, because the the mitochondria doesn't doesn't actually respond so well to antioxidants over over a long term a long period of time. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's been a number of research papers that have s- studied the effects to show that that mitochondria um they they use free radicals to to actually signal um to when they need to go through uh, biogenesis or, or whatever and so mm-hmm. it, it becomes the the issue is if you're taking these these fish oils or whatever and then you're supplementing <laughs> with loads of antioxidants <laughs> the byproduct effect of that could be could be suppressed mitochondrial function so that's it's, a very good point yeah, so it's it's really difficult where to go with this, I think, but it just highlights some 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 cracks in the foundations of, of what many people talk about as set in stone. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, it really, from what I really understood from this research, for me, the big thing that stands out is like how saturated fat—it's pretty good for you. <laughs> <Yeah. Brilliant. laughs> in new ways that I have never dreamed about. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah i think that's a given among all different uh schools of thought is that you know you can you can consume as much saturated fat as you like <laughs> so that's good news
2: yeah but stop taking yeah, the fish oil
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well it but, sounds okay. like from the arguments against ketogenic diets and the whole poofa argument that you don't want to put your body under any unnecessary stress, which we all know on some level. But even on the cellular level, you don't want to stress your cells out. So whatever you can do to uh, give yourself the least amount of stress as possible is what you should be doing. And those details are the things that you need to work out. But on a more macro level, uh, don't eat foods that you're not sen- that you're sensitive to like if you're sensitive to dairy even after going a long time without eating it and you try to implement it again and you get an, a stomach ache it's probably not time for you to be eating dairy right now uh gluten mm-hmm. uh too many carbs like some people do more do better with a higher amount of carbs than others uh so just don't stress yourself out meditate get a proper amount of exercise, not too much, not any kind of uh, chronic cardio or anything like that. This is basically where I'm going with this argument.
0: <laughs> Don't stress yourself out. <laughs> well, yes, uh, I'm I agree with what uh, Tiffany said. Uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the whole 30 thing that we mentioned in our description, um, and it was something I had just heard about recently, but I didn't realize it had been around for some time is this you know you could call it a diet fad but it's i think an interesting idea where for 30 days you eat only whole foods meaning nothing is processed um and you don't like do any measurements you don't weigh yourself or anything you just do that for 30 days and you see how you feel and the majority of people that do that end up losing weight having more energy um and i think you know if you know, if you want to lean towards a direction to start while keeping in mind what we're talking about, that everybody is different and you really need to fine tune your own practice. Um, I think a really good place to start is, is eliminating anything that's processed and then going from there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then keeping in mind, uh, you know, very, very simple things about too much of this or too much of that or too little of that, uh, is it can ultimately be detrimental. So it's about, starting with a a balanced um, starting point uh, and then going from there and and seeing how you feel and kind of measuring yourself. If you can't or if you don't have time or you can't afford to do like full blood panels and stuff like that, you can uh, basically just try to be very conscious of how you feel. Mm -hmm. And I think if most people would try that, they would find uh, that they are able to sense the differences in their body. Um, But Doug, like you were saying earlier, like you think most people aren't aware of those nuances within their body that's probably true Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe perhaps because they've never tried you know
2: yeah no I agree
5: Mm -hmm. that seems to be the main thing it's you know maybe there isn't this ultimate diet for every single person on earth but what seems to be like a common factor that can be applied to everything is just get rid of the processed foods eat whole foods you know real foods that actually look like food (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not something yeah. that you just <laughs> go to the shop and buy and it looks like a piece of plastic or something. That's generally not going to be good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It reminds
4: me what yeah. Dude was uh, telling me earlier today um, the Western Price Foundation, you know, mm. they never went really hard against cards. What were you saying? Well, yeah,
2: that's basically what I was saying. <laughs> I mean, the more we kind of want to get back to this. Price Foundation, you know, came uh, was, was, that was essentially that Whole Foods, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they never went against the grains. They didn't go against the dairy. They didn't go, you know. But but what they would say is that you need to prepare them in the traditional methods, the methods that these you know, you know, ancient cultures have been practicing for generations. You know, you ferment the grains. You eat raw dairy. Those sorts of things. Now, I still don't necessarily agree with them on that. I still have seen a lot of evidence for people being a lot better if they eliminate those things outright. But um, nonetheless, their whole foods approach, where like they didn't, they didn't condemn carbohydrates. You know, they didn't uh, condemn these other sort of things like the macronutrient uh, uh, ratios and things like that. It seems like the the more things, the more it seems to keep coming back to this.
4: They went very hard against vegetable oils. And they yeah, were they very did. Uh, good with saturated fat, you know, animal yeah.
2: promoting saturated fats, animal fats, and you know, denigrating, rightfully so, all the different vegetable oils and polyunsaturated oils and things like that. So it it just it, it came across to me that it's it's, it's very interesting that. You know, the more we look into this stuff, the more it seems to come back to that.
5: <laughs> because nature's packaged all food with all the types of nutrients in like a synergistic um, sense. You know, they, they work together. And so to, mm. to isolate one part of that, you're, you're taking some information from that. But then you're missing out on all of the other things that we probably don't know about you know we've only studied some of the things there's probably so many nutrients in food that mm. haven't even been discovered and so it's almost like um you know i mean there was a research called fritz pop and he actually did some research on um he studies light so he studies these single biophotons uh, cruz talks about them but they're basically just how living organisms and living things emit um uv light and so he studied food, and he found that whole foods all contained uh biophotons. But when mm. he studied processed food and GMO food, he found that that didn't contain any biophotons. So it's like it's what dead. you're doing by... Yeah, you're, you're isolating these substances, but it's almost like you're taking the life force out of that food, and it gets it kind of... C- mm. oh.
4: Oh, well.
0: oh, did we lose it? <laughs> Uh, In the most most fascinating
5: fascinating.
6: <laughs> Tell us more, Elliot.
0: <laughs> well, I can speak a little bit to what he was talking about, maybe not on such an academic level, but uh, if you look into uh, Standard Process vitamins, um, uh, uh, I think most of the vitamins that they make, um, the company called Standard Process, are food sourced, mm-hmm. <clears throat> meaning they, they're not extracted from industrial processes. Like, for instance, one thing that was really surprising for me was most of the time, if you go to a store and you get ascorbic acid, vitamin C crystals, uh, they're actually extracted from oil, uh, because it's That's a, a lot of, of time from corn, corn, actually, or from corn. Yeah. So it's yeah. a chemical byproduct of a, of a, of a process. Well, um, mm. <clears throat> you get food source vitamin C from standard process. It's, it's extracted from, from, from food and it's not, uh, it's not the result of a, uh, See, this is where I'm failing. I don't know the actual scientific details of it. The thing that I remember that stuck out in my mind is they showed under a microscope standard ascorbic acid crystals, which are what you would imagine would be like cube uh, crystalline forms that were pure, uh, clear, you know. And if you look hmm. at the food source vitamin C under a microscope, um, that ascorbic acid is kind of uh, lumpy and like discolored. Hmm. Um and they one of the things was that that's, you know, maybe going to what Elliot was talking about, perhaps it contains more uh, biophotons because it hasn't gone through a process where those have been extracted, where you're not mm. just literally taking this molecule out and then, you know, rendering it into a crystalline form uh, yeah, if, as one example.
5: It's almost like, um, you know, sort of from a naturopathic perspective, it's almost like you're taking the life force out of that piece of food, um, you know, and it, this, this energy, or even like in Chinese medicine and stuff, they, they, they talk about this, this life energy in food. It's almost like when you isolate this compound, you're, you're taking the information, but you're distorting that information. It's like it has to be, um, almost compiled in, in, in a whole almost. And that when you take one bit out of that, you're losing out all of this synergistic sort of, factors within that um within that food and so i can imagine that that can't be great in clinical whereas like in clinical application i think it can be utilized for really good benefits like ascorbic acid has been shown to have great great effects on like uh, say if you've got pneumonia or something but as a general rule when you're not really ill i think it's it's generally better to get that stuff from food in its whole package you know
4: I wonder if we sink to our
3: ascorbic acid crystals
5: when we recover the information. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Just put an orange in the it? bottle with the ascorbic acid. And <laughs> <laughs>
0: what? Another thing that comes to mind too when you're talking about like food source nutrition um, that... Uh, oops, sorry. I had a little distraction there. Um, So uh, what makes me think of is um, when you look at uh, different uh, areas of genetic ancestry, what they eat and the longevity of those peoples. So like if you look at, um, you know, not of course all of Asia, but let's just say Japan, you know, a a lot of uh, Japanese people live to be very, very old. And what do they eat? You know, fish, rice, uh, fermented vegetables, essentially pork um, pork, yeah. pork yeah all of yeah. it all uh, the pork
4: <laughs> you know, yeah like, and my, my sensei he's like 75 years old he looks like he's 45 mm. he eats yeah. a lot yeah. of saturated fat
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and then if you carry that around the planet look at like uh northern peoples like either like northern canada the native populations there or like scandinavia you know where they eat like loads of saturated fat uh red meat uh fish you know and fish oil um, but very little carbohydrates. Uh, but then, you know, and they live very long, but then you go down into like the South Pacific, look at like the Polynesian mm-hmm. Islands and that kind of area, where they eat <clears throat> loads of fruit, <clears throat> you know. And starch. You know, and starch. Of, you know, yeah, Fruit and starch. starch, yeah. But they also eat a lot of like uh, whole meat and uh, animal fat as well, and fish. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the content of the carbs, the starch, and the sugar in these different areas varies greatly and i think that's largely dependent on what we were talking about environmental factors like the amount of sunlight the uh the ambient temperature um and that is like that is baked into the genetic ancestry of that region of the planet so that needs to be taken into account as well um is mm-hmm. like i think i told this story on the show like maybe last year at some point where uh i i had heard a story about a guy who was a doctor uh, downstate in michigan he had a patient come in who was <clears throat> ostensibly really healthy. He ran every day, he exercised all the time, he had fruit smoothies, the whole nine kind of like the modern health package that you would think of. But he had stage four lung cancer and he had never mm-hmm. smoked a day in his life. He was like, I'm so healthy, how did this happen? And the doctor was like, Well, you're you're Scandinavian. You can't be eating all of this sugar, you know, like and you need more of what your genetic ancestry prescribes to your body type. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I don't know how that story resulted. I mean, um, you know, what the outcome of that was, if he was able to recover or not. But, uh, I, I think as an example, uh, that, uh, the, as people are looking to fine tune their diet and say, what should I eat? It's kind of like, where do you, uh, where do you come from? Um, mm-hmm. I think that should be a big part of it. Yeah. So, and then speaking to the whole food aspect and like the food source nu- nutrients, um, you know, what What are the foods that are most applicable to your genetic ancestry and then concentrate on those foods and not necessarily on, like, taking loads and loads of supplements, you know, or trying to, like, artificially mimic uh, this environment. Basically, just concentrate on that food. Make sure that it's whole and make sure that it's what your body needs. Mm. So, I don't know. Hey, yeah. Gabby, you had mentioned this once because your your family is from – uh I forget. Forgive me.
4: Korea and yes, Hispanic.
0: Yes. I'm a mixture. And, uh, so. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you I remember you we had had this discussion once before on the show and you had mentioned a similar thing that uh you know that mm-hmm. the consumption of certain uh natural born sugars was higher uh with some of your with your ancestry and that that you know may play a role in how the body metabolizes those things.
4: Yeah, well, I have both sides of the story. like from the Korean side, yes, it seems that they thrived on like fish products, meat, you know, hardly anything else available. I do have ancestors who died very prematurely. Uh, do suspect there was some irradiation going on, but yes, their diet was pretty much based on grains. Then from the Hispanic point of view, um Costa Rica. Um yeah. it has Yes, it has the uh, highest rates of diabetes in the whole world, and it's a tropical country. Like we should be able to deal with sugars, fruits better. But, yes,
6: um,
4: there's a good point to uh, that. You know, uh, there's a lot of processed food there.
0: Uh, yeah, that makes but, me wonder. Yes. If that- yeah. That change to hydrogenated oils and polyunsaturated fats uh, in excess had also manifested itself, like in Costa Rica and in other south- Southern countries. Yes,
4: that's a very good point. But yes, we do uh, we do see in Costa Rica. Like, I got a lot of diabetes, so yeah, the lots of fruits is not a good idea. <laughs> but yeah,
5: G- Gabby, do you, do you know when that when that started? Do you know like when that boomed almost, or is it? <laughs>
4: It boomed pretty much earlier than any other country in the world because in the late 90s, when I was studying, you know, in a medical school, like um, our teachers were really, really, really very concerned and very worried, you know, that we have more diabetes and uh, what's the deal here, you know, and even other countries from the world that already had processed food and, you know, so... Mm. And let's say also that Costa Rica is uh, composed mostly of um, and immigrants. You know, it's like the Indian population is very low, like in you know, the least than a few percentage, second digits, you know. Mm. It's mostly like uh, Caucasian people, um, Europeans, um, Jewish, you know, and so forth.
0: So I wonder if it could be uh, immigrants. You know who their aunts or people who lived there who were, their ancestors were immigrants and they ate a inappropriate uh, diet for their for their genetics um, yeah, it could be I just um, so still
4: reach and fruits you know there will be fruits that you won't won't see in the rest of the world you know <laughs> yeah
0: yeah
2: well, somebody brought up in the uh, in the chat room actually, so how do we find out our individ- what our individual ancestors ate? And I think that it's a good question, but I think that maybe, you know, if, if you are doing like we've been suggesting at the beginning of the show, kind of, um, fine tuning, seeing what works for you, testing things out, I think the genealogy is maybe a good thing to keep in mind, but it's another thing that you can't necessarily pin all your hopes on because genealogies get really mixed up. You don't necessarily know, like a lot of people have absolutely no idea. You know, they say I'm white that's and that's the end of it like they don't really know where it goes beyond that or there might be a lot of mixing going on so it's 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 an interesting thing to keep in mind but at the same time again you have to keep in mind that each person is very individual and um you do have to do a lot of playing around just to kind of see what uh what works for you
4: of course if you have yeah. the resources that are genetic tests though. <laughs> yeah. but i don't know if we want to go there yeah
0: well there are i mean if you if you are curious um uh, about tracking that down there's uh, a, a website called 23 and me um mm-hmm. where you mm-hmm. where That's you can it. have a you can have a DNA test done and it will um it will show you what your what your ancestral makeup is but of course like you said Duke, you know and, and Gabby in your example where your family is uh Korean uh as well as uh you know from Costa Rica those those mixes are are drastically different in what you would consider their their ancestral diets to be Um, you know, for instance, I'm, uh, part Italian and also part Finnish. Uh, so, you know, the Northern Scandinavian and the Mediterranean are pretty drastically different as well. Um, so, Mm. you know, Doug, like you said, you know, it, it can't be just another dogma. Like if you were to do that, then Mm -hmm. you would never, you would never really know because if you're made up of of uh, genes that are from different parts of the planet, then which, which one do you go with? You know, it's like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what and to, to add, new- back. Been- yeah. <laughs> to yeah. add
3: and another think- layer of confusion to it, you have to keep in mind epigenetic factors and the fact that genes respond to the environment that you're in. So you can't always mm-hmm. go by what your genes say.
0: Right. Yeah, mm-hmm.
5: that's exactly what I was just going to say, Tiff, because uh, our environment has changed so much in the past 30 years or 40 years. I mean, like, you know, yeah, there's there's Wi-Fi, there's artificial light, there's there's all these different types of things. There's all this environmental toxicity. So the the way that that could be actually changing our genetics right now mm-hmm. is also another thing to consider. So what may have worked for our ancestors sort of in the, in the past hundred years may not be applicable now. We may mm-hmm. have, we may have to do different things depending on the environment that we place ourselves in. So that's another thing also that that makes it a little bit more a little bit more difficult.
2: Sure. Mm-hmm. It's like
3: totally I
5: know
2: my family is, whatever you're eating, whatever your ancestors ate makes us <laughs> lots of saturated. Yeah.
3: And can I go <laughs> out on a limb here and uh, ask the question, is it safe to assume that there were periods when our ancestors skipped meals and went without food? Because I want to make an argument Notably. for intermittent fasting. Like maybe if you fasted <laughs> intermittently, you wouldn't have to worry so much about how much carbs or, God forbid, sugar that you ate. Because with intermittent fasting, you, you make yourself more insulin sensitive. So you don't have to worry so much about uh, whether you have so much uh, free glucose floating around in your blood system.
5: If that makes yeah, well sense. that would make sense yeah that would make yeah. so much sense because i mean the idea that i mean say if we were hunter gatherers i can't imagine that we have 100 access to food all of the time mm-hmm. it just mm. you know it's not realistic you have to factor in that we would have had to hunt and forage so there would have naturally been days when we would be in ketosis we would have, would be in this like intermittent fasted state mm-hmm. um so you know i think i think we have to keep that in mind as well and that's a really good point to if,
3: Yeah, I think it's important to be metabolically flexible. Like if you are in a Mm -hmm. period of abundance where you do have a lot of carbohydrates and sugars, I mean, I'm not going to sit up here and say that our ancestors, say, oh, no, I'm not going to eat that. I mean, they're going to eat it, and so am I. (laughs) 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 But that's balanced out by periods where you don't eat so much.
4: So I can have my cake and eat it too. Yes.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Why else would you have a cake if you're not going to eat it? I never understood that. <laughs>
2: That's the topic for our next show. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's, I think it's it's very interesting too that uh, most. I, well, I think all of the religious traditions around the planet have some form of fasting mm-hmm. uh, embedded in their in their rituals. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I that's, you know, not to speculate too hard on why that is, maybe it's a, a subconscious, uh, leaning towards being healthier through that means. But, hmm. um, I've noticed the same thing. I, I haven't fasted very often, but I've done it here and there. Um, intermittent fasting being different where you say you don't eat for like 18 hours and then you have a meal. But I guess, um, what I was referring to was like, where you fast for like three days. I've only done that a few times. And, uh, I, I can say it, it always had a, a beneficial effect uh, in the end. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's worth trying out. But then the intermittent fasting is also something to think about where you uh, you don't necessarily eat three square meals a day, um, you know, depending on what the content and the size of those meals are. Um, you know, sometimes I've found that when I was uh, really hardcore all the way into like nutritional ketosis, I only had to eat one meal a day. Mm. Mm.
3: Yeah. Mm. So have we confused everyone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Way to start Saturate the new fat. year. <laughs> <laughs> Still eat yeah. saturated fat. Fast. <laughs> the, point, the, the point of our show today to figure it out. <laughs> sorry sorry, we couldn't yeah. help you. Go figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Now I'm really I confused. have to say
2: though I'm still not convinced on the sugar thing. I'm going to have to do some more repeat reading I think.
6: Yeah, I'm for big me big.
2: if I eat sugar, I basically I break out instantly. I get instant acne and it's like, you know what? That's that's clearly a bad reaction there. <laughs> it's fun? so um yeah.
6: Or what if you just don't even have sugar craving? I'm just going to say on air like I'm not a chocolate person. I don't like chocolate. I know I'm a weirdo. I know, Oh my god! but show. it's not something that, <laughs> 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 but I mean, what does that mean that you don't have a taste for it? Or, you know, what does that say about your, you don't
3: like it, don't eat it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Once I
6: don't like, like it, it I just don't it. have that same love for it that. Everybody else that I know does. <laughs> you can
2: just give me your chocolate.
6: Okay. <laughs> yeah, who
5: are you, Erica? <laughs> I
6: do like well, coffee, Doug, though. Yeah, I'm
0: kind of, <laughs> Doug, I'm kind of with you on the on the sugar thing. I guess I'm not entirely convinced, to spe- specifically about table sugar, like refined sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although that is that is even technically still more natural than like high fructose corn syrup, technically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, 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 I go back and forth between natural sugars, um, because mm-hmm. like in the summer here, we have, uh, lots of, uh, you know, during a very specific point in the season, we have lots of blueberries, uh, thimbleberries, raspberries, and wild strawberries. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'll eat the heck, I'll eat the heck out of those for like a month, you know, while they're mm-hmm. blooming and I feel totally fine. So it's like, uh, I don't really know, mm-hmm. you know, if it's, if it's a hard and fast rule, sugar is sugar is sugar. There are many different yeah. types, and so well, I think that's yeah. more of a whole yeah.
6: food too. You know, it's living yeah. in the yeah. environment, and mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah, because
6: yeah. I yeah, like mangoes, and those are very sugary.
3: Yeah, I don't think that Ray yeah. Pete yeah. is advocating <laughs> just spooning out some table <laughs> sugar and eating it. No, I think he <laughs> is, doesn't he? No,
5: no, no, no. He's he's not. He, that he was just bringing that up as a, as a like a uh, one of yeah. those quirky facts. You know, I don't think mm. anyone suggests table sugar um you know i think natural sources of sugar can be tolerated by many people a a lot better and i think in the context of information as well you know it it contains that information that life force whatever that is and so um you know when when essentially table sugar has had that life force taken out almost you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't contain the same information and so i can imagine that is probably nowhere near as beneficial as natural sugars would be Right.
4: One can argue as well if ideal biochemical pathways or processes apply in these toxic environments. Non
0: ideal world. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, if I can take a cue from the Matrix when you want to wrap something up in a nice little bow, there is no bow. <laughs> <laughs> there is no bow. Uh, so. The, uh, I think the, the general point of our show, as we've stated, uh, but just to kind of wrap up a little bit is, is, you know, uh, it's, it's up in the air for everybody pretty much. I mean, uh, we can look towards some general guidelines, uh, processed foods, just throw them completely out the window. I would say just don't even go near anything. that's like made in a factory or a chemical lab, you know, um, uh, hydrogenated oils, uh, be very careful and try to find out when your food uh, contains those and avoid that, uh, as much as you can uh beyond that um you know don't eat like two loaves of bread a day because that's probably not good for you <laughs> you know um, yeah. uh, but beyond that it's like uh it, everybody's different and so you may be curious to try uh the keto diet that doesn't mean that you can't try it but try it and keep your mind open you know and if you if you really follow the rules and you get into it and you're measuring your ketones and you're doing well uh, as far as the process goes, but you feel like crap, then that indicates that there's something going on. Um, similarly, uh, if you're like, "Oh wow, carbs aren't that bad," well, I can eat carbs, and you start eating a bunch, and then you feel bad. Pay attention to that and be like, "This isn't working for me." You know? Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I think it's important it, to point out that we're not we're not
2: saying the keto diet's off the table, because right. like we said, we've seen a lot of success with it, and I do think that. Um, in many, many situations, it's indicated, at least temporarily. So yeah. um, I still kind of feel like everybody should do it, like everybody should try it and see if it works for them because mm-hmm. it's almost like a really good baseline to kind of see where you're at and and see where the problems are. Um, and, you know, it, it I, most most people I run into seem to do well on it, at least temporarily.
5: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. And learn to listen to your body, you know, and look for um, inflammation. I, th- I think that we all agree that in a general, as a general principle, inflammation itself is the root of many, if not all of these uh, conditions that we're talking about avoiding. Uh, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 cellular or some other type of, of inflammation. Um, and if you look for the markers of that in your own body, you can really tell when it's happening, when it's happening in your joints or in your gut, you know, or in, in your brain. Um, you can't always tell, but usually you ha- you can find some kind of uh, an indicator that that is going on, and then that's that should be an alarm bell that you need to change something um, because mm-hmm. the body is not designed. The body is designed to use inflammation as a warming warning mechanism, not to be inflamed all the time. Yeah, yeah. and um, if you have
3: good health insurance and an open-minded doctor, and you can afford to get labs done, by all means, do it. <laughs> You know, yeah, your that's a lot of ifs, yeah. yeah, that's a lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of ifs, but there might be one person out there who might be able to do that <laughs> yeah
0: it's true. Yeah. true yeah yeah for sure uh, and I guess on a more like uh, uh, a hippie uh, love and flowers note um, be, be nice to yourself you know I mean if you yeah. <laughs> you know be kind to yourself and be compassionate to your own self because if you like screw up that's, I think, another thing that's important in this idea of dogma. Um Sure, a lot of people don't care about diet at all, and they think it's completely boring. I think on the opposite extreme end of the spectrum, some people think that it's like the end-all, be-all, and if they eat something wrong, then it's just like the worst day in the world, and they've sinned against themselves, you know, and it's mm. like... um yeah, if you want to get esoteric about it, sure, maybe. But, you know, I think ultimately you need to, like, uh, remove uh, guilt from the picture when you are doing these kind of experiments. Because that's um, just another and...
3: stressor, for one.
0: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it'd be like, I'm so bad because I ate a cookie. No, well, <laughs> you know, how did it How did it feel and should you do that anymore? You know, it's
5: really as far as you need to go yeah i think quite often is that you could probably do your body more more harm by stressing about it for so long afterwards (laughs) yeah really neurotic about it you know one say if you accidentally have a one small piece of gluten you know if you're not like a celiac or you're not majorly intolerant like it's not going to kill you but (laughs) i swear some some of the times when i've done that i've been stressing for two weeks afterwards I've probably done so much damage just through guilt and stress. (laughs) So, I think my point is is that, you know, to echo Jonathan, you know, just it's not the be all and end all. You know, there's many different factors that come into this.
0: Yeah, just chill out, man. That's the point. (laughs) Sorry. All right, well, should we, uh, I think we've, we're approaching our time here. Should we go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment uh, for today? Yeah. Sounds
3: good. Uh, She's
6: talking we'll about
0: and-
3: animals and dreaming.
0: Awesome. Ooh.
6: <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome to the pet
4: health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. First of all, Happy New Year! I wish all our listeners a wonderful year full of discoveries and loving moments with your furry companions. As for the topic of this week's segment, it is going to be about dreams and if animals dream. Well, most of us probably already agree that they do, but here is a recording where you can find out more about it.
1: Enjoy! You dream every night. Now, you might be yelling at me that you don't, but you're wrong. Just because you don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Everyone dreams, even animals. Hello lovers and dreamers, Lisette here for DNews. When your head hits the pillow at night and you fall into deep slumber, you dream. And we're not alone. According to new and, well, some old research, animals are dreamers too. Of course, there's no way to ask an animal once it wakes up if it was dreaming. But science points to yes, most animals dream. And it all comes back to rapid eye movement or REM. We sleep in stages. REM sleep is the final stage in your sleep cycle and when dreaming occurs. Like a lot of things in the brain, it is still a mystery. But, scientists think REM sleep has to do with storing memories and learning. When REM sleep starts, your body sends signals to your cerebral cortex, where learning, organizing, and thinking occur. Signals are also sent to your spinal cord, where neurons are shut off. This causes temporary paralysis of your limb muscles, so you don't act out your dreams. Meanwhile, random signals are also sent to your cortex, and some scientists think this is where dreams come from. They think dreams are your brain trying to make sense of these random signals, creating something like a story. So, basically, if scientists observe REM sleep in animals, they can conclude that those animals are dreaming. Or, to put it in a more science way, Patrick McNamara, director of Evolutionary Neurobehavior Laboratory at Boston University, says it is reasonable to suppose that animals have something like what we call dreams. Until recently, REM sleep cycles were only seen in mammals and some birds, but researchers in Germany might have discovered that reptiles dream too. Researchers put probes inside the brains of five bearded dragons to measure electrophysical activity while they slept. And they found that they had sleep stages similar to that of reming humans. So, dreams. Or, again, something like what we call dreams. The lizards average 350 REM cycles, lasting about 80 seconds each. To put that into context, humans can experience five REM cycles a night of more than an hour each. But REM sleep isn't the only way we've been able to tell animals' dream. Scientists can watch animals' sleep and how they move, just like your family pooch. But remember how the brain paralyzes us so we don't act out our dreams? Well, in 1959, a French neuroscientist altered the part of a cat's brain that is responsible for this. So when the cat fell asleep, it moved all sorts of ways. Scientists observed it raising its head, arching its back, and overall appearing as if it were stalking or hunting prey. And scientists have even studied what animals animals dream about. Research done at MIT looked at rats' brain patterns when they were in REM sleep, and found they were similar to brain patterns measured when they were running through a maze when awake. They figured the rats were dreaming about their daily maze running. The two measurements were so aligned that scientists could conclude where the rats were in the dream maze. A study was also done on zebra finches that found they might be practicing their songs while they slept. But what does this all mean? Well, it helps us understand our brain a little bit more, but also a little bit more about evolution. If a similar sleep pattern is occurring in the brains of mammals, birds, and lizards, that means it likely existed in our common ancestor, the amyo, which existed about 320 million years ago, suggesting sleep patterns may have evolved 100 million years earlier than we previously thought. Do you dream about crazy things? Maybe you should start an online dream journal through a website. Domain.com can help you do that. No domain extension will help you tell your story like a .com or .net domain name. And because you watch DNews, you can get 15% off Domain.com's names and web hosting by using the code DNews when you check out. But even with all that, sleep is still pretty crazy. Over on DNews+, Trace looked at lucid dreaming, dream monitors, and even if we could someday record what we're dreaming about. Check it out here.
5: After hooking people up to electroencephalographs,
7: They found that they were in REM sleep by looking at their brainwaves. Then, by signaling with their eye movements, with predetermined eye movements, they were able to to say that they were aware of their dreaming.
1: What's the craziest dream you've had lately? Running mazes? Stalking prey? Share your thoughts in the comments, and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode of DNews. Thanks for watching.
0: Those goats get woken up out of a dream.
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> did we forget to say Happy New Year? I think we- Happy New Year! I swear you did, and I was just like, oh, I don't think we said that. Happy New Year! Happy New Year, everybody.
0: Happy
5: New Year, guys.
0: <laughs> I think we, we should also mention that uh, we are very close within a few days of our two-year anniversary.
6: Oh, ah, yeah.
0: yeah. That's right. Yeah, so... Technically, it was our anniversary show. Cheers! So.
3: Break out the champagne!
0: What was it? That Break we out were the champagne the and pizza. That- <laughs> yeah. I have to test it.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, like like both said in the comments. Let's all test our reaction to pizza and beer and Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's it's been. Uh, it's been really great uh, not to get super sentimental about the, our our history, but we've we've certainly learned a lot. And like we were joking before the show, we've we've learned a lot, and we still don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> <Is that> true. <laughs> yeah, we know a little bit. Bacon. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, the more you learn, the more you know how much more there is to learn. That's <laughs> true. <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So yeah. Um, thanks everybody for listening and, uh, for following us on this uh, journey. We hope to do a lot more. Um, and we, uh, we are hoping to get more uh, guests on the show uh, this coming year. So we will, we will work to be doing that. Um, and, uh, we will keep everybody posted. Um, uh, as you may have noticed, uh, we did the show today at 11 a.m. Eastern time instead of 10. Uh, and so we are going to start doing that as a different, uh, airtime for the show on Fridays, Um, so throw that in your calendars if by some crazy chance you actually have our show marked in your calendar. Uh, (laughs) uh, Start your weekend off right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Be sure to tune in uh, on Sunday at uh, noon Eastern time uh, to the SOT Radio Show. Uh, go to radio.sot.net uh, and you will see the uh, the airtime in your local time zone if you visit that page uh, on Sunday, so be sure to check that out. Uh, thanks again, everybody, and we will be back next week.
5: Bye-bye.
6: Bye, everybody.
5: Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.